telling people about who I am? That's the hard part of the question, right? I'm still trying to figure that part out. Um, my name is Uzma Joffrey. I'm a mom of four, a board certified physician in family medicine and geriatric medicine. And I own a 100% mobile practice and that's pre-pandemic. So I've always done a mobile practice where I call myself the black bag doc and I go to my patients uh, wherever they're living. So I love that. Right now I practice 100% geriatric medicine and hospice care. And the plan was at some point, I'm gonna go back to full spectrum um, family care, but I just really love what I do. And the idea of being stuck in a box and seeing young people just doesn't, it's not that palatable. So it hasn't happened yet, we'll see. Uh, I'm a medical director, certified medical director at an assisted living and a hospice. I've been married for 15 years. I like to think that I'm a professional volunteer um, originally from Texas, that's a big part of my identity. And another uh, recent identity shift has been, um, you know, motherhood is overarching, but in exploring that and validating and affirming it for myself, becoming a co-host of Mommy Well Muslim podcast, I think all of those things are who I am right now. So cool. So, and you mentioned that you have four kids. What's, what's the age span? So they are seven to 13 years old. And my first three are 16 months and 18 months apart. And then I took a three-year gap before I had the little guy. So I have one at the tail end to kind of fall back on and be with me a little bit longer after the three, like fly the coop. So. Wow. And so you had completed medical school and all your training before kids? No, actually I was one of those, um, how oh, fatally optimistic people who thought, well, there's no convenient time to have children. So who cares? You know, and I, I got married my fourth year of medical school and my husband was like, well, what do you think about kids? You know, when we were courting and I was like, well, I think they're great. Um, and he wanted to know when would be, you know, my projected time. Cause I got married um, pretty much an old maid in our culture at 28. So had about 300 plus 250 plus eggs at that time. Um, and I was very confident of my fertility, but all the grown adults, women around us, our elders were not confident in my fertility. <laughs> so um, I, I was very anxious to get started and I had uh, three pregnancies in residency. And then, uh, so I had two kids during residency, delivered my daughter two months into fellowship um, so that would, be, would have been my fourth year of training. And so my youngest was actually born when I was a full-fledged on my own doctor. Wow. No, yeah, I did three, three under three in training. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Not smart, but you know, it was what it was. I'm just, I'm just in awe of probably the resilience, um, you know, and the fortitude that that takes. I mean, medical school without pregnancy and without even having kids is grueling and daunting, mm -hmm. but to add to it. And then you mentioned that somehow you found your way to geriatric care. So how, how did you come to do the work, including the palliative care and the mobile? Like, I just love to hear all about that. Oh, okay, great. So, um, initially I wanted to do, uh, uh, OB because I grew up uh, in a conservative Muslim environment. And then when I was in college, you know, everybody kind of has that 
Islamic reawakening and everybody around me was very hardcore and some very um, big time speakers were my teachers at the time. And through the years, they have softened their stances. But back in their more strict days, I uh, took what they said to heart. And first me touching men as a physician was haram me taking out like interest-bearing loans um, to go to medical school was also haram, which is sinful. So I decided to come up with a compromise. Well, I'll make it less sinful if uh, I go into OB because I'll only deal with women and I will be providing a very critical service to my community, uh, which is the Muslim community. And, you know, so for 10 years, I prepared, like I am going to be an OB. And then um, I got to medical school my first day on OB rotation. I was like, oh my god I'm never doing this this is awful I mean I loved it but not enough to do it for the rest of my life um, but you know if you rewound a little bit even into college before I ever got to medical school um, everybody was in line to uh, go volunteer at the children's hospital and again it was everybody wanted to do it so there was a very long wait list I wanted to get into volunteering right away and hospice was just being born around that time the specialty um, the care has been done, you know, since time immemorial, but the actual specialty was being developed uh, around the time that I became a volunteer. And so they trained me um, and I, I had to fight tooth and nail to be able to go because my dad, being a typical South Asian dad, wanted me to be a physician. And he said, well, if you see somebody dying, you'll be too afraid to go to medical school. And I said, um, if I'm in medical school and that's the first time I see somebody dying, that's going to be a problem. So I better figure it out right now and, you know, front load myself and make sure that I can do this. And it turned out that, you know, um, death was sad, but it didn't shatter me. Um, I still had a little bit of that, oh, you know, once I become a doctor, I'll fix it so that nobody has to die. Um, again, that fatal optimism. So ultimately, the, uh, the experience of my clinical years in medical school showed me, um, you know, older people languishing in the hospitals and ICUs, you know, hooked up to all kinds of things and alone, you know, some of them, if they were not necessarily in the ICU, but for months on end, they'd be on the medical floors or they'd be in rehab and nobody ever visited them. And sometimes we would talk to the families over the phone, but culturally that was such a shock to me because in our experience, our elders, like we would never leave them in the hospital alone, even if they had a command of the English language, we were with them, you know, because anything could happen to an older person in the hospital, they can get confused, maybe it takes some time to wake up, maybe they don't like the food, so then we call and get like the family to deliver home cooked food, which of course the hospital hates because it's high in fat and salt and all the bad things, but um, it was particularly my grandparents, uh, three of whom are buried in the West, I only have one who's buried um, overseas in Pakistan, but uh, my grandparents were citizens of Canada and the United States. And so my maternal set, you know, my grandmother died very young. She had Parkinson's and ultimately died um, in an assisted living after being cared for years at home. And I was really mad at her for dying. So this is when I thought that death was like an enemy and a doctor's job was to reverse death, fatal optimism. I was about 15 when she died. So um, that happened then. Her husband, amazing, amazing person. I, I love him. I wrote about um, his dying process actually in an anthology. And, you know, seeing the way that he died, I'm just so glad that my mom had the good sense not to put a feeding tube in him because he was like 94 years old. Um, and 
it was a great experience. It could have been better though. There was a lot of stuff that we could have done better for him. And I was really heartbroken about that because I think I was studying for the USMLE in medical school and I flew back and thankfully got to see him before he passed. And it was my maternal grandmother for sure, a paternal grandmother for sure, when um, she was dying. It was uh, just after 9-11. And I mean, really, she had such a miserable, miserable experience until her pain was finally controlled. And then she passed on the first of Ramadan, which for Muslims is uh, a really uh, like a lot of Muslims will say they want to die in that month. And that was something that she had said. So she got it. Um, but uh, I walked in as a dumb college kid and saw that it was not hard to identify that she was suffering. It was not hard as a person of my faith, as a Muslim to know the angel of death is in the room right now. Like he is here. That is the death rattle because I had heard it on my hospice training and I knew um, and I called for pain relief for her and I created this big ruckus a huge rift in the family for several years happened because of me and my father you know protected me shielded me from it because at the end of the day both of us were really really um conscious clear about the way that she ended up dying because we feel like we did the best for her and it was seeing my grandparents in the way that they died um, essentially not at home in hospitals you know with devices and attachments and tubes that should not have been there. Um, and I decided that I was going to make sure that no family would go through what my family went through and decided um, by the end of medical school that, okay, it's going to be geriatrics that I'm going to be into. And uh, thankfully, the program that I got accepted to had a geriatric preceptor my, one of my attending physicians who knew that for me, lifestyle was utmost because I wanted nothing more than to be a doctor and to be a mom in the future. And because, you know, I was already pumping out the kids, always pregnant um, during residency, then he said, you know, why don't you look at being a black bag doc? And I did not know this, this existed. And I realized that there were still some physicians doing it, um, a growing population since the pandemic, as a matter of fact. Um, but before that, there was a, a small number of us. And I, I knew that after graduating from family medicine, I would go into directly into geriatric fellowship and I wanted to have that black uh, black bag practice because sitting at somebody's kitchen table, going through their medication bottles, walking through the house to see what's safe, what's not, and really just being enveloped by their families, you know, getting the Christmas cards and, you know, getting the phone calls from the families when they're out of state, like, hey, could, you know, mom was saying this today, could you check on it the next time you go? It just becomes this really, really beautiful, um, wholesome care. It's not like I'm dealing with a bunch of problemless. Of course, as medical students and young doctors, we get so overwhelmed because older people have a huge list of medications and a huge list of medical problems. And that used to be scary. Um, and I think, you know, seeing them as people and not as their diagnoses, uh, I think geriatric medicine gave me that. Um, and it was through, because everybody in my training through knew that I wanted to end up as this black back doc, you know, the hospice liaisons took me under their wing and a large part of my training and experience in hospice comes from them. And they recruited me to be a hospice medical director eventually after all of that. So that's how I got here. Wow. <laughs> that's amazing. Um, I have interviewed people in the past about 
um, birth, especially focusing on birth. I've only interviewed uh, one chaplain who works in palliative hospice care, but it's amazing to hear your experience being able to go into homes and it sounds like almost heal part of what you had wished, like you're creating what you wished existed for your own family and now yeah. other people get to benefit. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, I mean, I think you put it perfectly. I've even had patients that like look exactly like one or more of my grandparents. And I mean, I'm ashamed to say it, but yeah, they get really special treatment from me because it's like, you look like my loved one. And I didn't have the skill set to help them. I didn't have the trust of the family to help them then. So I'm so honored and privileged to be able to do it for these, you know, strangers and hopefully, you know, God willing one day provide it for my own parents. Mm hmm Beautiful. Um, I, I'm curious about, since it's the black bag or the home care is, is a little bit more rare, I think, you know, medicine used to be that way. Mm -hmm. And then it became very industrialized, you know, um, and now like the, the, the pandemic has swung the other way for some people, mm -hmm. but what do you think some of the, the benefits of home care are that you can deliver? You know, I think it humanizes the physician. And right now we see how much distrust has been caused. You know, before it was the private payers causing all of the distrust between patients and um, physicians. Like, oh, the doctor's like making me come back for so many visits because they want to make more money. Well, it's because the insurance won't pay them <laughs> if they don't do this, you know, for all of the work that they do. There's so much unpaid work that doctors do. So that created a rift back in the 80s, right? And now with the pandemic and the disinformation, it's like, you know, we feel so demoralized because people don't trust in our expertise. They don't trust in the investment of time, our youth, our energy, our resources that we've put toward getting this training to help them. Like that's literally the oath that we took is to help other people not to benefit um, on our own. And I mean, I don't care how much money a physician earns, they're, they're in it to help people. Like there's no person I've ever met, regardless of the zeros after their um, dollar signs that, their ultimate goal is not what benefits the patient. So um, that rift right now, I think we're on the path to healing it if we can bring back that old fashioned medicine because that's really what works. Somebody hurts, you give them the medicine or you test them right there, you figure out what it is, you give them an answer, they trust you, oh wow, you fixed it. You know, yeah, totally, this is it. Take two cookies and call me in the morning, you know? So it, it's that kind of, personal relationship that I think I was able to preserve in the way that I run my practice and in the practice that I, I um, that I'm in um, it's just me and so the patients know that they're reaching out to their doctor when they reach out to me there's not a bazillion answering services and wait and hold and press four and the MA will call you back and this will happen. And, you know, it's just all the middle people that we've inserted between the patient and the physician. I just brought it back together. And I think that advantage for me is what medicine, that's the medicine that I intended to practice all along. Like all I care about is treating you. I want to put my hands on you and I want to treat you. And I don't want any of the bull with the paperwork and all the phone calls and the, all that other stuff. Like, we need to follow up. We'll follow up. Like we'll see each other. It'll be done. So common sense medicine, I think is what yeah, I, what I that's like a beautiful about. vision. And I think, you know, for, 
for some elderly people, the technology, just the logging in and what oh, you yeah, said, the really looping, it, yeah. it's a, it can be like a, a maze like yeah. a, to get through. Yeah. And I did try um, the telehealth services initially with the pandemic. I, I didn't do that as a part of my practice because, you know, like a good majority of my patients are dementia and it's very disorienting to them to see a talking head on a screen, you know, because in their remote memory, there's no such thing and they can't make recent memory. So what the heck is this? And it was a terrible experience for all of us. So I was just like, forget it. I don't care what the risk is. I'm going to gown up and mask up and I'm coming in and I'm seeing them in person, you know, to the facilities that would let me in. So, mm -hmm. so, um, not everyone's familiar with the term palliative care or end of life care. And I, I know you mentioned some of the things like the angel of death in the room and um, also medical decisions that families have to kind of grapple with. Mm -hmm. um, so I'd love if you could explain just briefly about what, what is palliative care? What does end of life care look like? Okay. So palliative care um, serves anybody who has an acute or chronic life-threatening terminal illness, and it helps them stay on track with their healthcare goals while they pursue treatment. Um, and ideally it should begin at diagnosis. It doesn't always sadly, which is why I think a lot of people, um, I think they get into palliative care too late. And by then they're at the hospice stage. So hospice or end of life care begins after treatment of the disease is either futile, not tolerated anymore by the patient or the prognosis is really poor. And there's a clear trajectory of this person is gonna die in six months or less. And you know there are ways to score it. And basically that's the question that we have to answer Medicare at the end of the day to get them onto hospice or end of life care. Would you be surprised if this person died in the next six months? And if we can say no, then usually there's a reason, there's a medical reason or one or more of why we think that and we submit that to Medicare and say, you know, this person is eligible for these reasons. Um, and then they come on. So we stop treatment at that point. Typically it's, um, in the United States, it's typically people who get Veterans Affairs benefits that can continue doing, say, more aggressive things like chemotherapy, but also have hospice. But if you're not a vet, you've got to agree to stop hospice, uh, stop um, chemotherapy or stop uh, dialysis, physical therapy, things that are not going to help extend your life, basically, um, because your prognosis is just so bad. We expect you to die in six months or less. So um, that's there. Um, the second part of your question was about uh, end of life decisions for families, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, and what is end of life care? What can it look like? Ideally, I guess. Oh, okay. Well, so end of life care. You know what comes to my mind when I think end of life care? Do you remember uh, JFK Jr.'s statement when Jackie Onassis died? She was surrounded by the people that she loved and the books that she loved in her home and she passed peacefully. It was something along those lines. And so that's what comes to my mind. Um, I, the most beautiful death is a death at home with your loved ones in the comfort of everything that you built, the beautiful things that you collected, um, the beautiful memories that you made. Like that to me is an ideal death because that is I think really what I wanted for my grandparents and they didn't get. Um, it, that's what it would have been what have what would have happened back home or what my you know the stories that I've been told about how our great 
great everybody died was they were brought home and they passed there. So that's that's what my vision is. Um, but end of life care can be provided at any point where somebody is, whether you live in your own home, whether you live in an assisted living or an independent living, if you live in a rehab center, um, you know, we provide end of life care to indigent people too. So we can find a place for the unhoused to keep them safe um, because they deserve that dignity to die a dignified death as well. So uh, what that means is no suffering, um, the person may not be awake and alert. That sometimes is very hard for families. I would say that's the second hardest things for thing for families to tolerate. The first is that, you know, the dying person often has no more hunger. And that's very painful for us because I think cross-culturally food is love. And, you know, we want to force this person to eat and we're trying to get your strength back, even though deep down we know it's futile. But that's the only thing we feel like we can do. Um, and, uh, you know, it's hard to explain to people that this is the process of dying where the person loses their appetite and they're completely oblivious to it. And um, starvation is actually one of the most painless ways to die. Um, basically your kidneys shut down, the toxins build up, you go to sleep and that's it, you're done. It's usually a massive heart attack that kills them in their sleep. And it's a, a puff of air is what I tell people to wait for. And certain depends on the, the medical condition that they're dying of, but it's usually a puff of air that leaves and, you know, their eyes will go back and, and you know, like that's it. Um, or end of life can look like a family that is not on board. Um, they're really struggling. And even though their loved one, the patient is on hospice or end of life care at that point, they've maybe choked on something and the family freaks out and forgets to call the hospice. They call 911 and 911 takes the person to the hospital and they do everything and something goes wrong. You know, they do a procedure, the tube goes through their uh, lung instead of just into their lung. And now the person is filling up fluid in their chest cavity. And if you put your ring finger and thumb around their arm, like it would, you would still have room. Like that's how frail this person is. So end of life care tries to prevent that latter scenario from happening. Again, somebody having invasive procedures done that are not gonna extend life, that certainly are not going to provide quality of life. Um, it can look like all of those things. It really depends on how realistic families are. And I would say the majority of them are not. Um, is it because everybody thinks that they can research? No, I think it's really because they love this person so much they don't want to let go. So that's why I think it's important for us, even at this age, to start talking about like, hey, this is what I envision for myself dying. This is what I would want. This is what I wouldn't want done. And what that is, is advanced care planning. So knowing what your um, advanced directives will be, what will I be okay with, what will I not be okay with, when can you put me on machines, when do I want to be turned off of machines, and you know, for a lot of people, there's a religious component there, so what does my religion say about what I can stop and what I can't stop, um, and then finally code status is really, really important, especially when you get to the point where a doctor has said, okay, we need to pursue hospice care. Sadly, I will admit that most physicians who are not geriatricians or hospice trained are not comfortable saying this is the end of the road. Depends on their specialty too, um, but they're not comfortable having uncomfortable conversations to say, 
yeah, you know what, there's nothing else we can do. Like, we don't know how to fix this. Um, so until physicians become more trained to do it and become more open, honest, and frank with their patients and their families, I think it's the responsibility does lie on us as um, private folks who will need medical care at some point in our lives to decide, okay, I'm going to live my life this way and this is how I'm going to keep myself healthy and well, but when all of that stops because at some point I have to die, what do I want that to look like? I think we need to start getting comfortable imagining it. Um, and it really just depends on the environment that you were raised in and, um, you know, your comfort level with discomfort in order to do that. Did I answer that question completely or did I go off tangent? Yes. No, that was amazing. That was amazing. Um, a couple, um, I spent a year in a year to live program, which actually is grappling with death and dying. Mm-hmm. Um, it's based on the book, Stephen Levine, and it was actually, um, facilitated for the Muslim community, but anyone was welcome. Mm. And we had conversations all the time. I'm sure you've heard the phrase die before you die. So it's like envisioning. And we live in a culture that's pretty death phobic, right? Like Very we want to do everything possible to preserve life, to, you know, Botox. We don't even want wrinkles. Yeah. <laughs> We just want everything to be like pristine for as long as possible. Right. Um, and it's sad because I think we, we do have traditions and we do have different spiritual practices that help people transition to help them accept that life, we start dying the moment that we're born. Nobody yeah. wants to recognize that because mm-hmm. it's kind of morbid, but it's I so mean, macabre. Yeah. Right, right. You're not living every day, you are also dying every day, right? You know, I mean, right now we have so many bazillions of cells that are dying and turning over and being reborn, but sadly the cumulative cells will all die together at some point. There is a stop to it. So um, I, I don't know, like, I feel, I agree with you. We have in our tradition such a strong sense of let go and let God, but then putting it into practice, you know, whether it comes to death and dying or just you know, your daily living, mothering for me, um, it becomes hard to put it into practice. But professionally, when I see Muslim families struggle, especially, it's so painful because I'm like, what are you afraid? This is what we were trained for since the day we were born was to meet Allah, you know, enter my garden. This is what we want. Like, why are we so afraid to go there? But I think there's a lot of cultural misunderstanding about the sanctity of life and taking life and suicide and physician assisted suicide has totally, I think, confounded the topic of end of life care, particularly for Muslims um, who come from many parts of the world that have a distrust of the medical establishment, particularly the Western medical establishment. And given what Muslims have endured in this country for the last 20 years, again, there's so much distrust of the medical establishment and what are they really trying to do to our loved one in the hospital? So until somebody like me walks in and says, no, it's okay. (laughs) nobody's trying to kill you nobody's giving up on you nobody's saying that we know better than god what we're saying is god knows best now there's nothing else in our wheelhouse that we can do now it's truly in god's hands but in the meantime this is what we can do only to control symptoms because we don't know how to reverse any of this please go pray please go light candles please go sacrifice as many animals as you want to but i'm we're telling you what our 
medical scientific limitations are. We agree with you that we yeah. are not God. In those poignant moments where you're like, um, basically it's recognizing that you have to surrender, right? Like mm -hmm. there's all this technology and there's all this um, advancement of, of the human, you know, medical field. Um, but at the end, we have to surrender to reality. The reality is life ends at some point in this realm. In this realm. Yeah. In this realm. So in your day-to-day -day actions, how, how do you show up for people with their like theological concerns? Do you have any resources or words of wisdom? <laughs> I have a bunch of links that I can share with you. Um, and they're geared a lot towards the Muslim community because we have such a such a dearth of resources, to be honest. Um, I've only picked like three that I can share with you, but you know, on my day to day, I'm really not dealing with a lot of Muslim patients, which is a, a tragedy because they are not using the hospice um, benefit that they have a lot of times paid into their working lives. And they don't know that it's appropriate to get on hospice months before we actually expect you to die. Um, hospice research has shown that lung cancer patients that get onto hospice earlier um, live a year and a half longer than their um, cohorts who get on later. A lot of Muslims think, oh, when they're actually, the death rattle is there, that's when you get hospice. Well, then it's too late. You know, if we were able to come in early and control symptoms early, then their quality of life could have been better. Maybe they could have had uh, a more beneficial encounter with some estranged relative or from somebody with somebody far away or even just virtually on FaceTime with somebody who wanted to say goodbye. Um, so, you know, it's uh, it's overcoming that cultural hesitancy to, I guess, is it throw in the towel? I don't, I don't know what it is. Again, I think it's because they don't have an understanding basically of what their hospice benefits are in the United States. Um, on the regular, I'm, I, I meet a lot of patients or their families from say um, Jewish, Native American, Catholic backgrounds. And for them, I'm so grateful to have, you know, chaplains on our team. And so hospice is, it works because it's the way that all medical teams should work where you have a social worker and you have a chaplain, you have a volunteer, you have the nursing assistant, you have the nurse, you have the doctor. Did I miss anybody? I don't think I missed anybody. The volunteer coordinator, everybody's in the same room talking about the patient and seeing, okay, they don't have money for this. Social worker, you get on that. They need to move from this situation. Social worker, get on that. They need to be buried within 24 hours of death. Hey, doc, can you sign that death certificate within 24 hours? And being a Muslim, I know that my Jewish and Muslim patients, as soon as I get that death certificate, it needs to be signed because they need to be buried that same day. And, you know, where I live, it's beautiful to learn um, some of the Native American rituals, um, some of the uh, Mexican traditions with dying where the family prepares the body and keeps the body. And we deliver the ice so that we can keep the body on ice and they can have their own viewing and wake at the house. It is a gorgeous, gorgeous gorgeous experience to witness these other cultural traditions that validate my belief about how death should be. And I'm not even talking about my Muslim belief as how death should be. It's my vision 
for all of humanity to die with flowers in your hands and like your clean favorite outfit, you know, prepared by your daughters and your loved ones or your sons and your loved ones just in your home. And, you know, it's just quiet and beautiful. It's like you're sleeping and you're finally at peace. That's, that's what I think is beautiful. Another cultural um, phenomenon that I've noticed is you talked about birth. You know, we have doulas for birth. There are death doulas that help a family navigate that dying process as well, especially, you know, when you're holding vigil in those last 24 to 48 hours of a dying person, having a death doula there to, to tell a family and guide a family through, okay, well, this is what transitioning means, and this is what being active means, and this is what's going to happen, and this is what you can expect. This is why they're not peeing. This is what happened when they, you know, you tried to put water down their throat. Now they've aspirated and have a pneumonia. So those death doulas, if we could have somehow the government pay for them to be part of the team, oh my word, would that be would that be amazing? Um, I've gotten to see how different races approach both elder care and end of life care, and you know, I don't have any numbers to back it up, so I'm not going to say you know what I think about it. But I've noticed that there are racial disparities in how we approach both segments of our population, the seniors and the dying. Um, and I've learned to hold my judgment. And I've learned to meet people where they are. And that's a part of my culture that I needed to change where, okay, I, I shouldn't be so quick to jump because my values are very different from this family's and vice versa. So whatever I can do, because ultimately the patient is the priority for me. So whatever I can do for their process to be as painless and easy and quality as possible, I'm going to get the family on board somehow, some way without undermining their value system and without imposing mine on theirs. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like the only agenda that you're carrying is the agenda of mercy and compassion and what that looks like for each family is different, Yeah. but those are the principles and, and how they achieve it and what they agree to and what their values are. You meet them. That's beautiful. Um, your work is, some people would say it's so heavy or it's so responsibility heavy. Um, how do you feed your soul with such challenging work? I believe in a lot of downtime. I also believe in a lot of humor, usually inappropriate humor. Um, and my team can attest to that because you just have to make light of it. You know, this is a part of life. So, you know, find, find ways and avenues to laugh. Even the dying person, they deserve a good dirty joke, you know, to make them chuckle. So share it with them. Um, teamwork, I think is critical. Nobody can do this work alone should not do this work alone because it is very overwhelming and that's where a lot of our muslim families families who don't utilize hospice um, they suffer because they take on this insurmountable work that is not meant for one person it is meant for community and that's why with those seven people plus on my team i mean i would not be able to survive without them so i i really 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 honor each and every person down to the people who file our paperwork like they make this role and happen um 
personally, for me, it's reading. I read a ton of books. It's not unlike me to finish three books in a week because um, I'm a voracious reader. I love it. I love to write. So I'm always writing something or recording a voice memo when I have inspiration. And then the podcast, you know, um, ultimately, um, while I'm dealing with death, you know, I am primarily raising and hoping to get my kids to live to the point where they get to bury me. Um, it's through my kids and throwing myself into them, knowing that my identity, the one that matters the most to me after my religion, is my motherhood. Um, the podcast, you know, is kind of the embodiment of that. Momming One Muslim has brought me so much joy uh, that there really is very little in the world outside of the pandemic that ever put a damper um, on me. So yeah, I am constantly upbeat. I'm still a lot of times fatally optimistic despite the work that I do. Um, I did hit a wall in the winter of 2020 when about 60% of my patients died. Um, I have a very tight practice so that I can keep my numbers small and provide quality care to my patients and have that, you know, that doctor-patient relationship that that I always craved and, and desired and want to make standard for everybody. Um, and I was very, very depressed that winter. And after years and years of running from a diagnosis of depression, um, probably about 15 years late, I finally just finally saw a doctor after seven years and said, I know I have depression. These are the positives that I'm screening for. This is the medication I want. Please get me started. And it changed my life. Like, within a month, I was myself again. Um, I had hope again, I could take care of my children again, I could show up for my patients again. So that was uh, really, really important. It's not that, oh, you know, because I have all of these support systems in place and all of these extracurriculars in place that I'm perpetually okay. No, I, I really did um, experience a dark period, December of 2020. And yeah, it just shows that, you know, even doctors will succumb to mental health um, stigma. And I think that's what it was. Like, I just didn't want to be diagnosed, but I knew what my diagnosis was. I'd known it for 15 years. I just avoided it and uh, recently got off medications and I feel fine. Thank you for being vulnerable enough to share that. Um, that is a theme that comes up often on my podcast. I think I've interviewed I don't know that there's anyone that I have interviewed that hasn't experienced some form of depression or anxiety, whether it be postpartum or midlife crisis or, you know, something that was onset from the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I did not, I really thought I was quote unquote above it because I'm dealing with it. Like I know, I know plagues last for years. I am prepared for this, but what I wasn't prepared for was losing like you know, my 94 year old boyfriend and who I'd had for years, you know, he was my daughter's biggest Girl Scout cookie customer. And even she bawled her eyes out when we went to say goodbye to him, you know, but it was, it was just tough because it was the relationships. I think I was grieving. Yeah. yeah. So, and I think I was grieving my own immortality because I knew it didn't exist, you know, like, oh, I'm a human being too. Dang it. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes a fresh grief can reactivate old griefs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 
or it can stimulate anticipatory grief. <laughs> like you mentioned your own, your own death, right? It's like, yeah, yeah. There's no escape. There is none. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was through, through medication and counseling. So there's that. Yes. There's relief. <laughs> there is yeah. relief possible. There's relief for our suffering yeah. because I think we all have different ways that we suffer. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's interesting. Sometimes people say, these are first world problems. And then they minimize and they try to explain away the fact that they're actually suffering. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, I see that. I get that. <laughs> I'm with you. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> um, so how do you think your vocation has impacted your own faith? I know you've touched on some different things, but especially as a visibly of Muslim woman mm -hmm. walking into spaces that maybe a don't expect you to be a Muslim doctor. And then someone that has this very niche, um, you know, skill set. Um, so I feel like my faith is so affirmed by the work that I do. Um, we're taught that, you know, culturally we're taught that the prayers of our elders you know, are answered by God, especially because, you know, they're just, they're closer to him, they're praying more, they're more faithful, more experienced. And if we do something kind for them, then they will pray for us. And I, I just knew early on that it didn't matter what religion they had, you know, because I've had all kinds of faiths pray for me, older folks, and I love it. You know, nobody's ever said, bless your heart. So that's a good thing. They actually meant it when they said, God bless you. And, uh, you know, I have, I have felt God with these people. Like, yes, I've felt the angel of death in the room too, just because that's, I was trained to believe that he's there and what the signs are. And so I know I, I use it to prepare families, like with my clinical set, with the knowledge that I have, and the belief that I have in my faith, um, I'm able to prepare them sometimes to the hour. Like this is how long you have with this person. So say everything or do everything you can. Um, one time I was so on the money, I came back and the family met me in the driveway and they're like, dang, you were right. And I was like, unfortunately, I'm really good at what I do. <laughs> but um, I think I, I'm very glad to be a Muslim because, again, death is not frightening to me. Death is not an enemy to me. Death is actually a relief from this temporal life into my eternal life, into the eternal lives of my patients who have been suffering for sometimes years. And to know that they're finally free, um, to know that, um, you know, the family is free from watching the suffering. Um, that is very faith affirming for me, um, knowing that there's a difference between life and living. And that's what I love explaining to people. Do you want them alive or do you want them living? Because there's a difference and bringing families and patients around to that, um, to that comparison, to know how to make that comparison and how to make the right decision for themselves. I mean, that to me is God is at work there. You know, yeah, I'm presenting it, but whatever comes into their heart after that is not from me. I believe that that's from God. And like I said before, you know, we're doing God's work until, you know, we hit that wall and now we can't, you know, like we know our limits. 
we don't even know what we don't know, right? But that doesn't mean that our clinical skills, our clinical knowledge, our book knowledge isn't valid. It just means there's so much more to learn about the human body and the disease processes. But at some point, we cannot do anything without machines. Do you want that for yourself? You know, and I think, again, being able to present all of these options to the family in a non-judgmental, gentle way, um, in an empathetic way, I think whatever comes in their hearts after that is from God. Mm -hmm. And if the answer we don't want doesn't come, it's hard to say, okay, they're not inspired by God, <laughs> but we have to just kind of step back and say, mm -hmm. okay, that's just where they are right now. Let's just see how they, it plays out. And eventually it's going to play out the way you told them. And, you know, it's, it's still a learning experience and they have plenty of people in their family that are going to die. And now they know, mm -hmm. and they know that they can always come back to you for that mm -hmm. guidance and that assistance again. Yeah. Well, I, I love that you began explaining, you know, your experience witnessing what happened to your grandparents and then seeing families kind of go through that struggle themselves. And even if they can't um, come to clarity about how to deal with the person that's currently dying as they struggle with it, they do learn something through the process. I had the blessing of accompanying one of my friends while she died from cancer and it went quickly and I didn't really know anything about hospice or palliative care but it really struck me and I feel called and I think I mentioned to you that I decided to take chaplaincy training and now I'm really digging deep into figuring out how can I serve the community talking about advanced care planning even with the limited knowledge that I have mm -hmm. even having one conversation with a family because I really hope to prevent misunderstandings, um, regretful communication. And um, it's such a hot, emotionally, um, you know, sparky time for people. If there's any way that they can prepare somewhat and nobody can prepare, you know, for the unexpected no. and the mystery, but just even one conversation, I think can help a family some, somehow. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a bunch of stuff um, that we can do. And like I said, there, is, there are, you know, those links that I will share with you. Um, but one of the easiest ways you can do this is if you're not going to have a personal, like friendly conversation with somebody that you know, um, make a space to have an in-service with the local hospice agency in your communities. They have oh my goodness, countless resources, because you know what, they want you to use your Medicare benefit. People have put thousands of dollars in your Medicare benefit. And all you're doing, what they what they don't understand is that hospice, um, who's going to pay for it? So I've had patients on their deathbed, like Facebook messaging me, who is paying for all this equipment? I'm like, don't worry, hospice got you, man. Hospice got you. So you're basically, um, hospice is a Medicare A benefit, and you're switching out your hospital benefit for hospice. So you've agreed you're not going to go to the ER, you're not going to go to the hospital anymore, because you want everything done for you possible at home. And if it can't be done, we're going to keep you comfortable. We're not going to let you die in pain. We're going to get rid of the symptoms as much as we can with whatever we can. And then when we can't, we're going to hold your hand to the end, right? So you have already paid Medicare taxes out of every single paycheck your whole life. Right. Why would you wait until the last hours of your life to cash in on that? Because you know what? You're never going to cash in on it unless right. you start early. Um, so 
these agencies are wanting to come talk to the community and they're wanting to diversify their patient clientele. They're wanting to show Medicare that we provide care to diverse people equitably. We include all of Americans in this. So we need Muslim patients, really is right. what it is. So asking them to come out and do an in-service is such an amazing thing. I recently did that for our community over here right before the surge started. Thank goodness. The questions that came out of there were incredible. Our audience was asking amazing questions that that inspired them and inspired me to go home and have really important conversations with my family and say, hey, I chose you to be my power of attorney, but can I trust you? Like if I'm if I'm down and out and I can't speak for myself, will you do exactly what I say? And it turns out that I'm my parents' power of attorney and I told them, no, I will not do exactly what you say. And so they're like, okay, well, we're glad we found out. So they have to change it now. So it's it's really nice to have all of those important medical legal conversations, ethical conversations. And it's just a conversation. There's no obligation in it. So if more people would invest in doing that, it's completely free. You know, it's completely free. Um, have them come out to your masjid, to your house of worship, to your rotary club, to your book club. It it literally takes 15 minutes. And then you go home, you have the conversation, you could call them back and say, we have more questions. So I, I would say that should be a jumping point, as well as um, the two or three articles that I have linked for you. Yeah, that would be great. So we could have a, a death cafe chat and serve mm -hmm. sweets and chai and attract people. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I would actually make it like all like, what is it? Nightmare on Elm Street, like themed. Oh, be like, hey, let's yeah, go. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, that would be cool. So um, that's a great suggestion. I'm I definitely going to follow up on that and share all the links. Um, and as a clothing closing comment, what are your hopes and dreams for the future? Yeah, you know, I would love to see not a lot, but some, especially in our very large metro areas. Muslim nursing homes or care centers because our baby boomer parents, a lot of whom are immigrants, you know, they're not going to want to move out of the homes, but for some of them, their private homes, but for some of them, that is the right choice because we want them to be safe. We want them to be functional safely for as long as possible. And sometimes out of their home is the way to go. Um, I would love to see our communities not just planning for toddler groups and mom groups and pregnancy groups and breastfeeding groups and postpartum groups but we have this whole other end of the spectrum but sadly because we are in the west we are such an ageist society we forget about the seniors so i would like to see communities planning more stuff for seniors during their active years to promote their quality of life their social interactions their place in society because they still have a very important place and a very important role to play in society as mentors for the rest of us um, as examples and role models for the rest of us. So I think that that's really important. And then for their later years when they're, they've lost some functionality, we want to keep them a little bit safer. Assisted livings um, are a really great option. This is a, you know what we used to call nursing homes. We don't do that anymore. Um, but I would like to see assisted livings that cater, that have Muslim-centered care if they're not Muslim-owned businesses. Muslims really need to break into this industry. It's a bazillion dollar industry in the United States. Um, I think the rewards in this world and in the hereafter are so spectacular. They're countless um, to be to be given the honor of taking care of the most experienced and um, the ones who just shower you with 
blessings and prayers all the time. It's such an honor to take care of this population. Um, but most importantly, I'd like to see the Muslim community come together to learn not just how to live, um, but also how to die as Muslims. Mm -hmm. What what words of advice do you have to people that have some shame around basically finding a care facility that's going to meet their elderly parents' needs better than they can? If they recognize they don't have the capacity to really take care well, mm -hmm. what what words do you have for the for the I guess the adult children that are in that situation? Yeah. There is no shame in providing the best care that you are able for your loved one. That's kind of, it's comparable to moms who are shamed for putting their babies in daycare. You know, you have no option because you are working. A lot of us are sandwich generations, so we're out of the house. We cannot keep eyes on the elders while we're raising children, you know, and chauffeuring everywhere. And sometimes we're out of the house 12, 14 hours. There are a lot of elders and there will be a growing population of elders who cannot be left unsupervised safely for that long. And to that end, oh, and alone, you know, that's the worst part. The social um, withdrawal and isolation is a real thing. So it's important to put them in an environment with their peers where they can have regular activities and stay engaged you know, with recreational therapists occupation, who are occupational therapists who are trained to keep their minds engaged because if you don't lose it, if you don't use it, you lose it, right? So I think that if anybody tries to shame someone into putting their loved one into a care home, you can choose to ignore or you can do what I would do, but I'm not gonna say it on air. Or the third thing that you could do is say, I made the best choice for my mom or my dad or my uncle or whoever that I could for my family. This was best for our family. And you can leave it at that, you know, because that's the same thing that we see on this end of the spectrum as young people about our kids. This was the best choice for our family. And that's all you have to say. Don't let anybody shame you into serving your parents because you can still serve them honorably and respectfully and advocate for them. Be a better advocate for them if you're not the one providing that hands-on care because not everybody can do that. Very few people can do that work. That is literally the work of God and not everybody is built. To, I'm not built to do it. So, yeah. Yeah. And some, some folks require more medical care and physical lifting. Physical and, lifting. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, um, it's a, it's a tough spot. I'm glad you mentioned the sand, sandwich generation. There's been some movement towards advocating for caregivers and creating a caring economy that mm -hmm. cares for children and elderly and yeah. being really practical too about accessing we paid into medicare so we should benefit that's your that. money <laughs> go get your money <laughs> don't wait yeah. and don't let anybody tell you to wait you know so um i recently flew out um, to put family on hospice out of state and i think within 24 hours the family was like the other family, not the direct family involved, but other extended family was like, wait, isn't it too early for hospice? Nope. There are medical criteria to meet to get on a hospice. And if you meet them, boom, you should take it, man. Don't say no. 
-hmm. You may have to give up physical therapy, but guess what? There's going to be a point where physical therapy is absolutely futile. And you may not know what that looks like. Ask your doctor what that looks like, and they'll explain mm -hmm. it to you. You know, there's a point where dialysis is just not worth it for somebody who, after three hours a day of sitting in an infusion center, you know, the rest of the day they're asleep. So you've lost any opportunity to engage with them. Is that the way you want to remember them? Just, oh, I dropped them off at dialysis. I picked them up at dialysis. The rest of the time they're out cold. No, like talk, make the memories. And oh, oh, I would love, love, love for people to start doing this. Start recording your elders. Start recording those stories. Start recording those recipes, whatever you can. Even if they're talking out of their heads, just record it. Um, a friend of mine recently uh, lost her mom and her daughter had the wherewithal uh, during uh, mom's grieving, uh, dying process. Uh, her little girl went to grandma and said, grandma, can you say happy birthday to my mom? And she recorded it and gave it to her mom 10 months later. Ugh. I was like, we can never give your mother a gift now because you basically gave her the best gift of the entire world, you little stinker. You know, so... I would I would pay money to hear my loved ones now. So I think that's a that's a huge gift that you can carry on to posterity. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a podcaster and I think audio is is awesome and amazing. But you know this this is our history, and that's one way to preserve yours as well as these beautiful beautiful memories you've made with people. Usma, mm, I love that you're doing this. I love that you're called to this work and so many people are benefiting and I appreciate your time so much and your heart. Thank you so <laughs> Thanks much. so much for having me. I appreciate it. Sorry, I lost it at the end. <laughs> oh, I'm a crier. Oh, good. <laughs> good, good, good. So you got it. <laughs> See, and we laughed. You have yep. humor and tears. It's humor all good. and tears. It's all in the same. Yeah.